In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the people saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bowls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, humans like human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowds from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each uh, church, and with prayer and fasting, commit them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had reached the, uh, preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed by the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And so we're, we're talking mostly today about how the crowds responded to the good news. And it's in ways that we respond. We're going to do something a little bit different today. We'll be walking through this, but we're going to kind of pass through the passage uh, in four different ways. And we're going to look at it through the eyes of the people who responded and how they responded. So we're going to look first at the people who were receptive. There were some people that were receptive, even as is true today. And then we're going to look at the people that were antagonistic. And then we'll look at the people who worship the messengers. And finally, we'll pull it all together by looking at some who became maturing believers. So first, we're looking at these guys who, um, you know, who were receptive. And we have to set the stage a little bit and tell you where they're at. They went to Iconium. And we, I think we have a map here. Matt, can we fire up the map here and we'll show you where they're at? So they were originally, remember, in Antioch. And there's two Antiochs. You know, the, one of the best ways to understand this is, you know how we have counties. So we have San Joaquin County, we have Tuolumne County, we have, um, we have, what are we in, Stanislaus County, we have all these different counties. They had, they had districts. And so the district of Antioch that you see where we start with was actually in modern day Turkey, but in those days it was called the district of Syria. And the, then they went down to Cyprus and they went up to the other Antioch, which was in another district called Pisidia. And now they'll go over to Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, which are in another district, 
and that district is actually called Laconia, and that general area is called Galatia. And Paul will write a letter to the Galatians later. So this is modern-day Turkey, if you know your geography, right? So they are in modern-day Turkey is where they're hanging out. And so they go up to Antioch, and today they're going to go to Iconium. Iconium was about 100 miles distance on the famous Via Sebasti Road that was put in by the Romans. But that's a long trip, 100 miles. And they're making it by foot. So these guys, you know, they're getting a good workout, and they walk all the way there. It took several days, and they get to Iconium, and they discover a city that is one of the most ancient cities known in the world at the time. Nobody remembers when it was started. In fact, there is a story about it, a legend. And the legend is that there had been this horrible flood that had destroyed the known world. And the world was recreated at Iconium. And the gods Prometheus and Athena, they took mud and they formed them into the images of human beings and they breathed into them and they came alive. And everything started over again. The Greek word for image is icon. And so we have iconium and we have entertainment icons and we have sports icons. And iconium... Uh, it's still there today. It's the town of Con Konya. It's a thriving community in Turkey, and that was where they went. It's a beautiful place, from what I'm told. They have mountains in the distance. It, it's verdant forest, beautiful, nice climate. They went there, hung out at the spa for a while, and then they decided it was time to get ready for ministry, right? So they, they came to this beautiful, nice place, and they went to get down to ministry. And who did they go to first? They go to the Jewish synagogue. They always go first to the synagogue. We've talked about this first to give them the opportunity as Jewish people to join with them in this ministry. And a lot of people respond. A lot of Jewish people are responding along with a lot of Gentile people who they're, they're focusing on. And they're coming and responding and they are very receptive. They're receptive to what they're saying. And it says one of the primary reasons why they're receptive is that they spoke effectively. So, gee, I'd like to speak effectively. What does it mean to speak effectively? Well, it's written in Greek, remember? So, in Greek, effectively means to speak as if you believe in what you're saying. Isn't that an interesting statement? It's somebody who speaks as if they believe in what they're saying. There's somebody who's really sincere, really real and authentic. Now, we hope that's true when we preach on Sunday mornings. It's certainly what you should look for. I mean, we don't want you to get excited because... We are exquisite, exquisitely eloquent. See, I can't even say exquisite, so you don't have to count on that. <laughs> or because we wow you with our knowledge because you can look it all up yourselves, right? But hopefully it's because we really believe what we're saying. This is personal for us. This is authentic. This is the real deal. Now, he goes on and says that because of this, it, um, these guys get in a little bit of trouble, right? And they turn against them, and they leave town because they find out that they're going to try to stone them, which shows that you don't always have to stay around to get martyred. Um, and they travel, and the next thing they do is they travel about 20 miles down on the Via Sebasti, and they come to this little town of Lystra. And there's some reception there, and then they go further to Derby, but we don't know how, we're not really for sure where Derby was. It was out in the frontier. It was right on the border of this, the district of Cilicia, which is where Paul grew up, is where he's born and raised in Tarsus. But they get to the border there, and it's maybe 35, 60 miles away. And they get there, and they have 
more receptivity. People are responsive to the gospel message. And so then they go back all the way around, which is dangerous, and they circled back around and ministered to these people, and then they went back home to the Antioch that they were originally from, the other Antioch in Syria, and they told the people all the good news that God had opened up the doors, had opened up the gates to the hearts of the Gentiles, and people were coming to know Christ. Um, so it's a, a powerful thing. There's another aspect here that I failed to mention that one of the things that they do in the process is they, they have, God gives them signs and miracles to help them in this process, to help the Gentiles respond. Does God still give signs and miracles to us today? Does he? I, I believe he does. And I think sometimes we overlook them in our sophisticated world. I, I know just even in my prayer life this week, there's people I've prayed for. I know I was praying for somebody to get a job and found out they might get a job, praying for somebody else to pass a test and they pass the test. Uh, those kinds of things that we pray about, we just sort of take it for granted. But we see that God is intervening even in small ways in our lives. The greatest miracle is when somebody comes to know Christ and their life is literally transformed. This week I had the privilege of sitting with somebody and praying with them as they gave their life to the Lord. There's nothing really more exhilarating than that. They've become part of the kingdom of God. And that's what was happening with these guys. They were having an impact on them. The message they were giving is the simple message that we talk about every Sunday. Uh, they basically were saying that these guys needed to admit that they were sinners in need of a savior. They needed to believe that uh, Jesus died on the cross for their sins and rose from the grave. And they needed to choose to follow Christ and put their faith in him alone. And if you've never done that, we encourage you to come and talk to us about it because that's the greatest decision that you can ever make. And it's the decision that transformed the lives of those that were receptive. But now we're going to pass through at another time and we're going to look at those who were antagonistic. Their response is a little bit different. What's really interesting here is it says that they, they basically choose to not believe. Now, obviously, we, we look at other passages. We know that God is the one who pulls us. Uh, and there's, there's this mystery that's involved between God's working in our hearts and God pulling us and God being in charge of everything that happens, him being sovereign. But there's a responsibility on our part. And these guys essentially make a decision not to believe. And then they stir up the other people in town with the same attitude. They kind of poison their hearts. They embitter them. And some of them had gods that they believed in, the rulers of the town, and so they get upset. And pretty soon, everybody is upset. We've got decisions we need to make. I was reading a book um, called Burning Horses. It's an interesting book by a lady named Agatha Huff. And in this book, she writes about her mother. And it's a true story about her mother, who was Jewish and survived the Nazi invasion of Hungary during World War II. Horrific book. Some pretty gnarly things happened in this book, but they survived. What's really interesting is that the reason they survived largely is because the church, the Christians in their life, keep intervening to help them out. And at this point, they're in Hungary, so the church is a Catholic church. And there's a great quote in here um, by the husband. Um, he says this. He says... Ironic, isn't it, that though we aren't believers, each time we've needed help, it's come from the Catholic Church. I still think it's nonsense. Uh, she was asked by a friend who she believed in. She said, 
I believe in my husband. They were at best agnostic. When everything ends, guess what? He doesn't have any hope. He's lost everything. He goes and takes his life. True story. She dies, a melancholic old lady, takes an overdose and writes a letter. I'm going to go be with my husband. But you don't believe in heaven. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not a Christian book, obviously, but yet the message is more powerful than a lot of Christian books I've read. God gives everybody opportunities to be in relationship with him. But ultimately, we do have to make a decision. And if we cling to ourselves in our own ways, it's just not going to happen. There's a lot at stake here. Uh, it's pretty stark. You make the decision. It's a decision between heaven or hell. Now, Paul continues to speak boldly, and I forgot to say this earlier, so I'm going to bring it in now. I've got to tell you about Paul. They have this, this old writings that have passed down to us, and most scholars believe this is a true description of Paul that was given at that time by some villagers. Would you like to hear their description of Paul? Whether you do or not, I'm going to tell you because I, I have it here. Um, it says he was a man, small of stature, with a bald head and crooked legs, in a good state of body, with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked, full of friendliness. For now he appeared like a man, and now he had the face of an angel. And we wonder why he never married. So we get a little picture of Paul. So he was having an impact on them, and at the same time, these guys were becoming jealous, and they were wanting to take control of it, and they're getting more and more angry. And in that city, even though it was a Roman colony, uh, we have a lot of evidence that they were run much like the Greeks, which means that they had essentially a city council, which they called a demos, from which we get democracy. And so the city council had the vote. And when it says the city was divided, it probably means that the city council was divided as they represented the city. And people couldn't decide which side they were on. And that whole picture of division, I think, is a good one for us. Because we think of church as being a place where people come together and are united, right? And we have people here from all different backgrounds and ethnicities and socioeconomic backgrounds and people who would never meet each other on the street. And they're here. They call each other friends. They call each other family. We're a family in Jesus Christ. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 verses 34 through 39, that he didn't come to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword. And his sword will separate people. While we're here on earth, we have to make decisions. Again, are we going to follow or are we not? And, and we're going to find that when we make decisions to follow Christ, not just in salvation, but I mean simply to follow him in, in what he wants us to do, we're going to get pushback. And sometimes it will divide families. Parents and children, brothers and sisters, and close friends. In our country, we're beginning to see more and more division, aren't we? And people are taking positions over things, not always theological, but, but that's happening too. In other countries, it's far more severe. And people are persecuted and put in prison for what they believe in. But it's really important that we take stands for what we believe in in Christ, no matter what it might cost us. Howard Hendricks once said this, he said, people will argue over their beliefs. They will die for their convictions. 
people argue over their beliefs, they die for their convictions. There's not so many, that many convictions that we should be willing to die for, but we should be willing to die for our faith in Jesus Christ. That's, that's one thing that's unshakable. We can move, you know, and we can shake and go back and forth on our beliefs, and we can argue our political positions and all that, but when it comes down to it, there are certain areas that we just don't budge. And, and it happens just even in our regular life. I know this is something I don't hear about as much, but it was something that was drilled into us as when we were young, um, when I was dating my wife, Carrie. I told her, I said, uh, you know, we're getting serious, we're starting to talk about marriage. And I said to her, I said, I love you a lot, but I know God has called me to go into ministry. And I am going to go into ministry. And as much as I love you, if you're going to marry me, you're going to have to go into ministry too. And it's going to be a sacrifice. I know we're going to live a sacrificial life. But that's what I'm called to do. And I've got to follow God first. Do you want to come along? That was basically the message. And she was moved by that because she saw I had conviction, and that's what she wanted. She wanted to follow God first. And she wanted a man who would follow God first because if we loved God first, then we knew there was the potential to love each other more. We don't see that much anymore. In one of my favorite songs, Keith Green explains that well in the song, um, you know, I, 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 give my, my, what is it? I give my head to heaven is how I think he says. So, yeah, once I start singing it, I'll, I'll get it going, but then everybody will leave us. Um, I, pledge my, I pledge my head to heaven. And he sings, I pledge my wife to heaven for the gospel. Uh, though our love, my love for her just seems to, seems to grow each passing day. As I told her when we wed, I'd surely rather be found dead than to love her more than the one who saved my soul. Now think about that. Do we have that kind of commitment? What comes first in our lives? Is God really first even over our spouse? and over other loved ones? I'll tell you what, when he is, you can love them better and have a better relationship. But that's the kind of conviction we need to have that I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow God no matter what, no matter the division that takes place. So he moves on and they, they continue to antagonize over him. They actually stone him and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. And, they, they wreak all sorts of havoc. But let's take a look at Lystra. When they come to Lystra, we have the wor- they worship the messenger. You know, you've heard the saying, uh, don't, don't shoot me, I'm just the messenger. In this case, it's don't worship me, I'm just the messenger. So they come to Lystra. Um, Lystra, by the way, is the town of Timothy. How is Paul to know that Timothy, who is soon to be his, one of his closest friends, two books of the Bible are written, his, are basically his letters to Timothy. Timothy is um, a man he later calls his spiritual son, is going to be in Lystra. He comes to Lystra. Lystra is really a backward place. And they don't speak to the Jewish synagogue there. Why? Probably isn't one. It's probably the first time as it appears that they speak to a pagan crowd, a crowd that just believes in the gods and the goddesses that we worship today as comic book heroes and movie stars. Okay, those are, they are the same ones. A lot of the, you know, all the, a lot of the things that we worship as we'll see, um, 
you know, are a lot of the same things that we, we have today. You know, we have some of those gods on television and stuff today. Just, they're just make-believe, but they, they become superheroes. So in this case, that's where they go, and they have to speak to these guys. Um, there was a legend about this town that's written up by Ovid, was a Greek speaker, a Greek writer at the time. And the legend was that two of the gods, Zeus, who is the head of the gods, also known as Jupiter, if you're Roman or if you speak Latin, and the other one is uh, Hermes, who is also known as Mercury, they came to town. They actually visited Lystra. And when they came, nobody was interested in them. They treated them pretty poorly, except for two people, an elderly couple named Philemon and his wife Bacchus. And they welcomed them into their small cottage. And so you know what those gods did? They destroyed everybody else, and they, they honored them, and they took that cottage, and they made it a temple, and they made them the priest and priestess in the temple, and it gets better. When they died, they became trees. What more would you want? I mean, they, they, had, they, had, they, they are now trees, you know? I mean, and they can, you know, they can branch out, right? And if they run into each other, you know, they can say, leave me alone. Um, but <laughs> that's just a dad in me. So, so they're trees and maybe watching this whole thing. Um, and we're told that they come to the city gates. The, it doesn't necessarily mean city gates. It's very likely the gate to the temple. That temple is no longer there, but we have all sorts of archaeology and coins and things to show us that that temple existed there at that time. So they, it wasn't the temple that they built, but regular people had built this temple. And it was sitting there, and it was probably at that gate, the center of town, that these guys gather together, and they sit down, and he starts speaking, and people aren't paying very good attention, and so then they heal this guy, and all of a sudden, they've got rapt attention but they've got the attention they don't want to have because they think they're back. This is Zeus and Hermes. They're back. And they think that Paul is Hermes because Hermes was the spokesman of the gods and his father was Zeus, who was the chief of the gods. And Barnabas, by the way, may have looked a little bit like uh, Zeus was supposed to look because in the portraits, the paintings we have of Zeus, he's always kind of a muscular, middle-aged man. And the paintings we have Barnabas, he's kind of a, you know, burly, middle-aged man. And so there may be some connection there. Also, and this is just coincidental, uh, Zeus was supposed to have been born on the island of Cyprus, and that was the island that Barnabas was born on. But at any rate, they think Barnabas is Zeus, and they think that Hermes is Paul, and so they're going to worship them. And they don't get it because they don't speak the language, because they're speaking this ancient language to each other. And next thing they know, they've got like this, you know, toothless priest smiling with his white beard and walking around with all these, you know, bowls and these wreaths, and it's getting really weird. And they're asking, what's going on? And they figure it out. Well, they're really upset. And they, they tear their clothes, which is what the Jewish people did when they saw that there was a blasphemy. And they run into the crowd and they say, what are you guys doing? Stop, 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 stop. This isn't right. You're not supposed to be doing this. We're just regular human beings. And it seems like they're both speaking together because Barnabas' name is mentioned first. It's probably both interacting with them. And there's more going on here as they're trying to silence the crowds. And they notice what they do. They adapt their message because they're not talking and they're not quoting scripture. These guys have never heard scripture. And they're not talking Greek philosophy. These guys don't know philosophy. They're talking about theism. They're talking about God and how you can see him in life. You maybe haven't seen him with your eyes, they're saying, but you've seen how he's taking care of your lives. He's given you the sun. He's given you the rain. He's taking care of your crops. 
and he's given you joy in your hearts. And at least temporarily, they're able to silence them and, and get them to think about that. Um, those, are, those are interesting thoughts, even for us, I think, today, um, how God does that. There's, there's several different things that, that really hit me at this point. You know, first of all, is they're going to worship these guys. And I can't help but ask the question, do we worship Christian speakers today? Do we worship Christian speakers today? Do you think that ever happens? Yeah. Only me, thank you, Randy. <laughs> no, please, that would be horrible. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I like this shirt, I don't want to tear it. So. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when we think about it, it's kind of scary. I think we live in the era of the celebrity pastor because we have television and we have radio and we have computer. And so we can worship these guys, right? And, and so we do. You know, we lift them up and we have guys that have these mega churches and they have these big, you know, virtual empires and they have all this money and, and they're making millions of dollars. And oftentimes if you find out more about them, you'll see that everybody that works on staff is worshiping them. In fact, the whole thing, everything, the whole ministry is all about how can we build this person up? How can we best market this person? How can we best make them look good? And notice what happens is as soon as that person's gone, what happens to the ministry? falls apart because it's all built on the person. They're worshiping the person. Um, I've become kind of cynical because I've gotten to meet some of these guys and I've gotten to know guys that know them and I see a lot of it's a facade and it, it really bothers me. But there are some great guys out there. Um, I'll tell you how you know the difference usually is, we'll see here, they're the ones who take all that money and use it for missions and they start other churches and they leave their place and go someplace else and they train other people to take over for them and they focus on developing people around them in ministry instead of just putting the attention on themselves. You don't see that happen very often and it's because of two reasons. One is that God made us to worship somebody, made us to worship him. If we don't worship God, we're going to worship something or somebody. And oftentimes, it's somebody who talks about him. Another reason why is we were made to receive love. We, we want to be loved. And so when people give us their love and adulation, it's hard to turn that down. But as you see with these guys, they could have really taken advantage of this situation, but they don't. They say, we're not gods. That's not what we're all about. There's another thing that I think is interesting in this passage, and that is the, the way they interact with nature here. And we see that, especially for some of you as farmers, you get to see firsthand how God provides for your needs. I think, I always get a kick out of it um, when they talk about how we're in a drought and we're never going to get out of this drought and there's no hope. And then all of a sudden, here comes the rain. We have too much rain. You can't put God in a box. You just can't. He's the one who provides for us. Another thing I think is interesting is their talk about joy in somebody's heart. C.S. Lewis wrote an, wrote an autobiography, and he called his autobiography Surprised by Joy. He said his whole life was, he, he got this, this fleeting sense of joy in his life, and it was, it was what he wanted, but he couldn't hold on to it. He wanted to have it, but he couldn't keep it. And he kept going after it, and when he came to know God, he realized he was the source of the joy in his heart. And the more he sought him, the more he grew with him. And he says, 
All joy emphasizes our pilgrim status, always reminds, beckons, awakens desire. Our best havings are our wantings. The things we can't have, right, are the things we most want. We most want this kind of joy, this sense of fulfillment in our hearts. We can find it only with God. And it only happens as we grow day by day in our relationship with Him. And then we'll be fully fulfilled in heaven. And then finally, they, they turn around and they, they kill Paul, or they try to. They, they stone him. And it gets really nasty. And it's interesting between verses 18 through 19 how the hero becomes the goat. By the way, that will happen in today's Super Bowl. I can guarantee you a hero will become a goat. They're a hero when the game starts, but at the end of the game, they become the goat. And it can turn so fast, especially the higher you put somebody up on a pedestal, the lower they ultimately fall. And so these guys have them turn against him, and they stone Paul. Now, Paul gets right up, and you think, well, maybe he was a god. You know, how could he do that? Well, it wasn't because of him. It was miraculously. Paul did nothing. He should have died. But God miraculously intervenes, saves his life, and allows him to live. But here's something about Paul. He goes back in for more. He was one tough little dude. God knew who he chose for the job. And I'm grateful for people like him and the perseverance that he had because that's why we have the gospel message for us today. Finally, we'll see that they move on to Derby, and, uh, and we're going to talk about how some become maturing believers. They go to Derby, and the only thing interesting about Derby are the hats. Um, look kind of funny in the ancient world with those little Derby hats. I don't, you know, I don't know where the word Derby came I don't know. They, they say it actually means juniper tree. We don't know a whole lot more about it. Uh, this little town, but the people, again, are receptive there. And what they begin to do here is train people. And, and this is what we're talking about. Instead of building empires and having big shows on Sunday morning, the most important thing is to get involved in people's lives and change people. Amen. We don't want to entertain people. We want to transform people. See the difference? So we want to get involved in people's lives. That's why we have small groups. That's why we do discipleship in our church. That's why that's so important because... Uh, you want to meet with people one-on-one and in small groups, and that's what they do. They go back to the other villages, and they spend time with these people. They get to know them. They, they get them meeting with each other and holding each other accountable and supporting each other and taking care of each other. That's where ministry changes a person's life. Amen. And then the, the second thing that they do is they're straight with them. You notice that? They're straight up. They tell them, it's going to be hard. You don't earn your way into heaven, you know, but in the process... It's going to be hard. You're going, to, you're going to suffer on your way to the kingdom. Are you ready to do that? Boy, this flies right in the face of the name it, claim it nonsense. God doesn't say life's going to be easy. God says life is going to be really hard. And that's, that's what he says. It, it, there's going to be hardships if we follow Christ. We don't look for it, but it will happen. And then finally, they train, they not only train them, but they prepare some people to become elders or leaders within the church, and they hand it over to them and let them run the church. Now, in our church, we recognize that the words pastor and elder are used synonymously in the scriptures. Therefore, we can say that we have three pastors who are also elders. But it's also true in the scriptures, especially in 1 Timothy 3, uh, Paul later writes about how some of, the pa- some of the elders that are more gifted in teaching and leadership They work and they're vocationally paid and others are not in that position. They more come on as volunteers and they are advisors and they are a counsel for them and they are encouragers and they hold them accountable and they have another role. And we don't have those elders yet. 
but we're a young church, and our, as we pray about that and as you pray with us, we hope by this time next year we'll be at the place where we can finish our infrastructure and put in um, some volunteer elders as well. So we're moving right along in that. Um, so then they go back, and Paul goes back to Antioch, and they all rejoice, and they rest. I mean, sometimes you go, you're busy for a while. They take some time to rest in Antioch, and Paul probably writes Galatians, likely the second book written in the New Testament and the first book that he writes back to the same area um, after he gets to um, Antioch. So I want to take a look at some applications that we can look at for our lives today. One is to always be prepared to share your faith. In 2 Timothy 4, Two, Paul says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. The basic idea is we need to be prepared always to tell people in our lives. We don't know what the situation is going to be. They didn't realize they were going to get in this awkward position. I, I've been in so many different situations. You just never know when somebody's going to ask you to talk to them about Jesus. And you need to be prepared for that time and be prepared for the people whom God has brought into your life. Uh, the second thing is to expect division and hardship. You know, most of us struggle uh, sometimes with our faith when we encounter hardship, but it's just evidence that the Bible is true. We're not in heaven yet. And it doesn't mean that life isn't going to be joyful here on earth, but it's not going to be joyful like it is in heaven. Like C.S. Lewis says, that's some, one of those things that we just keep going after in our life. So we'll, we will have hardships. Um, I, I think of the football game again this afternoon. How many people are rooting for the Falcons? A few people. How many people are rooting for the Patriots? A few people. More people are rooting for the Patriots. Oh, my goodness. You want to see that guy? Oh, you're from Michigan, of course. Yeah, okay, well, that makes sense. But I'll tell you, I don't want to see the Patriots win anymore, so I'm going to root for the birds, okay? Um, and God already knows who's going to win. You know, it's already, it's already written in the book, so to speak. So he already knows. We can go ahead and watch it and just have a good time. If my team loses, I'll be ticked. But otherwise... <laughs> It'll be a good time, right? But here's an illustration with football. We've talked a little bit about this before, but football is very much like the game of life. And in life, it gets hard sometimes. But just like in football, these guys, it's a violent game, but why do they keep coming back and playing? Why? Because it's fun. Because it's exhilarating. Because they want to win. Because they love the camaraderie. It's very much like us in our church. We have camaraderie. We have relationships. And it's exhilarating when somebody comes to know Christ. And it's exhilarating when you see a marriage changed. And, and it's exhilarating, you know, when you see people taking care of one another and, and having an impact on their community. It, 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 it really gets you going. But it's just like football. Sometimes you get tackled and it hurts. And sometimes you fumble the ball and sometimes you throw an interception. But then you score a touchdown. And you know in the end you're going to win the game. And so you keep pressing on. The Bible usually relates it more to warfare, and we have some people I know have served in the service here in various um, military areas, uh, and they understand this perhaps. By the way, Dwight D. Eisenhower has a quote, and you guys did World War II in Akadak. How do you guys do? Did you win? No? She won the whole thing? Fantastic. So that's good, and you had fun. Good. Well, we have such an outstanding academic decathlon, and uh, Autumn, I know, is on that team, so that's exciting. Um, they, they studied World War II. The great World War II general, Dwight D. Eisenhower, once made this profound statement. Listen to this. He said, if war wasn't so terrible, we might grow fond of it. 
If war wasn't so terrible, we might grow fond of it. What he is saying is not that I love war. In fact, he hated it. Um, he hated people dying. But what he's essentially saying is if nobody ever died, war would be a lot of fun. Um, and in the end, we know that if we know Jesus, nobody, we're not going to die. We're going to live to be with him forever. So we need to enjoy the hardships because it's part of the game. And it'll end up well in the end. And then the question of worshiping. Who do you worship? Do you worship God only? Most people worship, you know, the car or the house or the money or the job or fun. A lot of, I would say even more people worship people. Their spouse, their kids, their parents, their boyfriend, girlfriend, best friends, their favorite athlete, their favorite singer, entertainer, right? How do you know who you worship most? Pretty easy. Who do you think about the most? Who do you talk about the most? Who do you spend the most time with? Are you spending time with God all day long? Are you talking to him all day long? Are you talking about him regularly? That will help determine who you're really worshiping. And then finally, you know, finally at the end here, are you becoming a maturing believer? We have a graph for our core class, which we're, we're going to have it coming up pretty soon. And that's our graph that we have. And you see, one of the things that we look at is if you moved up to the higher column there, is we believe that people, there's four kinds of people. And we start off as unbelievers, and then we see people become believers, and then we want them to get involved in the church, and that's what becomes a growing believer and then we want them to grow in their faith and become a maturing believer. They never become a mature believer until they get to heaven, right? But they're maturing. So there should be this process that's taking place in our life. I think a good question to ask yourself is, where am I uh, on that graphic? And if you haven't been to our core class, it will take place at 9 o'clock this Saturday at our home, and we'd love to have you come. So uh, please plan on coming and just let us know you're coming so we know who, how much to plan for. You can tell us online. Um, you can tell us personally. You can leave a note in our offering box and we'll go ahead from there. Today we started off talking about worshiping a robot. We said, that was pretty crazy, right? We said, that was pretty weird and, and something to laugh about. How would, you know, would we worship a robot? And yet people worship some pretty strange things. Some people actually worship the God of the universe. Who do we worship? Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much that we know you, um, and most of us in this room really do know you. And I pray for those that don't, that they would come into relationship with you, that we might worship you first and enjoy you, uh, even through the hard times of life, and have the confidence that as we walk with you, that we will be victors in Jesus Christ. And we look forward to the day when we will have that unending joy and be with you personally and enjoy your presence in, in person. But thank you for the time we can spend with you now, every hour of every day, and have you with us in our lives. Amen. Will you stand again?